0: Welcome to the New Retirement Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Michael Batnick, who is the director of research at Ritholtz Wealth Management, about his book, Big Mistakes, and also why investing is hard even for world-class experts, and finding your calling. Michael is a self-taught market analyst who who followed a pretty winding road to becoming a market researcher and analyst, author, and key influencer with 55,000 Twitter followers. I've been following Michael on Twitter. And also met him face-to-face at the evidence-based investing conference that his firm hosts in Dana Point a couple of months ago. So, Michael, welcome to our show. It's uh, great to have you join us. Thank you very much for having me on. I am looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, it should be interesting. Um, so I just want to open with a quick question. Uh, you know, I've heard you called the Oracle of Brooklyn, and I was curious where that, where that came from and uh, if you think it's deserved. Well,
1: unfortunately, there's a very boring story behind this because we – the Oracle of Brooklyn came about after a podcast episode that Ben and I did after I guess Berkshire released – or maybe it was after the Berkshire – the Berkshire conference, which I think was in May. And we just have it to name the podcast, the Oracle of Brooklyn. That was all there was to it. So
0: (laughs) is it deserved? No, nobody has ever called me that. And certainly it is not deserved. Okay. Got it. Well, it's made its way around. I don't know. I heard it somewhere. Um, yeah. All right. So I'd love to get, you know, a little bit on your backstory, just how you got started and kind of how you got here and what, what makes you unique?
1: Uh, Hmm. Um, I didn't, take my education seriously and uh, my career as a result not surprisingly suffered. Uh, I graduated during the great financial crisis and I thought I was really lucky to land a job um, at a financial planning company only it turns out that it was an insurance agency. And the job was to sell products that people don't want um, from people that didn't want to talk to me. So it was a really uh, not a great experience um, to say the least. And I was fortunate enough to meet somebody who started forwarding me um, Ed Yardini's work and breakfast with Dave Rosenberg. And I got really interested in the stock market. And uh, this is a long story. So I have to try and make it short. I, I studied my butt off for the CFA exam. I got interested in the stock market, started trading, uh, couldn't get a job Almost was ready to throw in the towel, go become like a you know a cashier or whatever. I, I needed to to get a real job. And I met Josh Brown um, at the train station,
0: we grew up in the same town, saw that he was hiring, met him, and the rest is history. Yeah, no, I think it's a great story. And I actually, I, you know, I don't want you to rush it too much because what i what I found really interesting and and kind of compelling about you is, so and you know, I discovered you on Twitter. You're obviously very I've read some of your stuff, and I've been listening to your podcast. It's clear you're a very smart person, right? But you know, coming out, uh, from talking to you the other day, it's like, you kind of weren't very focused in high school. You got into Indiana university. Uh, you, you didn't really succeed the first time there. You left cranked, you know, (laughs) did some hard work, got back in, you know, and then it still wasn't super successful and then kind of came back to New York and and made it happen. But you know, it's, it shows a lot of perseverance to kind of work through that.
1: Well, the first time that I got dismissed, um, that sucked, but it was it was fair and deserved. I was certainly not ready emotionally, mentally, whatever. I just I wasn't there. Um, the second time that hurt. That really really hurt because that was I mean for obvious reasons that was humiliating. I felt like I let my father down and my, you know, just everybody knew that I got thrown out of college twice and um, whatever the story was, it was it just it sucked and it left a it left a. Uh, lousy taste in my mouth, obviously, and I paid for it. Um, and I, you know, I had a realization: oh, this is why people work so hard and try and you know advance their education and their career and stuff. And uh, so, like I said, I, I got very lucky meeting Josh at the train station because if I didn't, um, I might still be paying for my my lack of education.
0: Yeah, but you also, you know, in but before you met Josh, it sounds like you really put your nose to the grindstone and figured out kind of this passion of yours, right? The market and, and got serious about, you know, not every 20 something says, Hey, listen, I'm gonna go study for the CFA, work in the library, Quit put the hours and take the first exam, keep going, you know, no job. Right. But you know, cranking away that that says something yeah. about character.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that. And I feel like I'm still making up for lost time. Um, I, I hadn't read a single book probably, um, for fun until I was like 25 years old. Um, and now I'm cramming
0: and, uh, it's what I love to do. Right. How, how many books, uh, A month you read I don't know Uh, whatever as many as I can get there yeah nice it looks like you read a lot (laughs) Um, all right cool and so now and then you you kind of met Josh and and got pulled into Rit Holtz and the rest is history you've been cranking Uh, I'm curious just can you quickly share how your your meeting with Josh went like what happened that evening
1: Uh uh-huh yeah sure so well Josh and I grew up in the same town Um, he's several years older than me, so we didn't know each other growing up, but he was like my North star because everything that he was writing about at the reform broker broker blog, I saw the exact same incentives drive behavior at the insurance uh, agency, maybe not as perverse, but although in in some ways, maybe, maybe even worse, I, I guess, um, because this was, uh, dealing with, um, family situations and he was, he was the guy that I looked up to. Um, and so when I met him, I felt like I knew him because I had been reading him for several years at that point, And we really hit it off. It went great. I told my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, you know, it went great. If I don't get the job, it's not because anything I did or said. I'm just sure that there's a lot of, you know, more qualified applicants that he spoke to. Um, and it turns out that I did get the job and uh, it's been, it's been life changing.
0: Right. And just for our audience who may not know Josh, um, you know, he writes The Reform Broker, which is really about his journey from, you know, being, you know, kind of like a boiler room, kind of like, you know, sales guy, pushing products, financial products on people that are less sophisticated, uh, to, you know, trying to, to do the right thing around providing, you know, good financial advice, uh, in a, you know, fiduciary way to, uh, to his clients. Um, and, and it's, you know, he's garnered a ton of followers from kind of exposing what's been going on there. And a lot of people who are like, you know, tired of what used to happen in wall street and happy to see, a it evolved. Um, yep. yeah, actually, so on that, do, do you, you know, since you're in New York, uh, and in this ecosystem, you know, is there still a lot of that kind of wolf of wall street and boiler room kind of stuff going on?
1: I don't think so. I was never really in that world. I mean, obviously, so I don't know, but I don't think that that exists like nearly as much as it used to. I would say that it's probably a 99% shrinkage. I'm sure there's still some guys slinging some bullshit, but um, for the most part, that's been eliminated.
0: That's awesome. That's great to see. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, just as an aside, it's like as someone who has done not financial product sales, but you know, been in the sales industry. It's, it's funny. People always still quote like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, always be closing first prize Cadillac, second prize steak knives. Third prize, you're fi- third, third, play- third, prize. You're fired. I don't know if you ever.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, I am, I am not a natural salesman. I don't like to. Um, I'm not really confrontational. I don't like to change people's minds or whatever. Like, there's a lot of different ways to do things. So I'm very happy to not be in that role. I'm not client facing. I'm talking to the advisors on a daily basis, but I am not the ones working face to face with the clients on a daily basis. Yeah.
0: Well, it's great to hear that. Kind of the culture's changing because I think that was part of what was uh, has always kind of tainted. You know. It's a certain part of the financial services industry, for sure. Um, yeah. Uh, quick aside here. So I listened to this really good podcast with uh, on Masters of Scale with Ev Williams, who started Twitter. And uh, one, it was amazing to kind of hear him talk. You know, you got a real sense for him that he's kind of a nerdy guy, and I say that in a very positive way. But he has this vision about what he wanted, which is to connect the best ideas out there in a, as low-friction way as possible. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, he's kind of had this single focus over the course of his career around really trying to carry that through. Like, he did the work on Blogger, then he did the work on Twitter, and now he's doing the work on Medium. Um, you know, it just gives you a, you know, a real insight to how he thinks and, and, and what he's trying to do with services like Twitter and how it enables people like you. Which is like, hey, you know, y- you know, you were kind of on this really pretty bumpy path, and then, like, now you're uh, an emerging, you know, key influencer out there based on meritocracy, which I think is great. Well,
1: yeah, yeah, it's just it's such a great place to learn because the more I learn uh every day the more the hungrier I get because I just real you know it's such an obvious realization of how little you know when you start reading about different different parts of the world and things that are very foreign to you it just I feel like um just my hunger has compounded every day and Twitter is like the best place for that uh it's where I do so much of my learning. And of course, there's a lot of bullshit that you have to deal with in terms of, you know, trolls and some anonymity and, and nasty people. And that's just part of the deal. So uh, that comes with the territory.
0: Yeah. No, I've I'm, as we've started to get a little more exposure on Twitter, you, you start to see some of the crazy stuff that happens and how people are, some people are just out there to say negative stuff and get a rise out of people. They're not really adding to the conversation. They're just like trying to get you pissed off, um, which is too bad. But I guess it comes with the territory. Um... All right. That's awesome. So, you know, uh, you know, I really appreciate hearing your story and we're gonna move on to your book. But uh, just another quick thing, as I was listening to another podcast that had like the UPS HR chief, and she talked about kind of the silver spoons, people that are kind of like perfectly packaged up. And, you know, they come out, they've got all the right, you know, credentials, they've had all the great, great experiences. And, and then versus kind of the strivers, people have had had you know, kind of bumpier, bumpier backgrounds and had to work through a lot of stuff to be successful. And she's always like, she was like, you know, you really need to take a look at the strivers and bring them in because those folks have kind of persevered and and worked through a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny about that. I still feel like I'm, I'm sort of, uh, the underdog and, uh, people like rooting for people that had trials and tribulations, stuff like that. And eventually everybody turns on them and it's like, all right, enough of this guy. And, uh, hopefully I could stay out of that space. Um, but yes, so far so good.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. All right. Well, let's move on to your book. So, uh, your book, big mistakes. Um, I have not read all of it, but I have read, you know, 20, to 25% of it. And, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely good. I, I, I don't want to say, I, I love this Confucius quote at the beginning by three methods. May we learn wisdom first by reflection, which is noblest second by imitation, which is easiest and third by experience, which is the bitterest. And, uh, you know, how do you think you've learned the most? Uh,
1: I probably in the third bucket. Um, I, so when I was studying for the CFA, I was, uh, I dropped my, my wife off at the train station, um, on her way into Manhattan and then I would go to the library and I would read the newspaper. I would read Twitter. I would read books. Um, and I would trade stocks. And that was a really, really amazing learning experience for me. I did it for about two years. And I thought I was investing. My method was pretty much chaos. If I had to describe it in one word, I was doing, um, I'm using air quotes, value investing where, you know, there was nothing, uh, there, <laughs> uh Seth Klarman would punch me in the face if he heard me say that, but I, would, I was basically just doing, you know, looking at, at PE ratios and price to sales ratios and, and determining if a company was cheap relative to its peers. And obviously that doesn't work. And then I was looking at some macro stuff, uh, GDP numbers and CPI and that sort of stuff. And then I tried. Um, doing technical analysis. And, and none of it seemed to work, right? Obviously, the, the market is supremely difficult and nobody is going to open up an E-Trade account and become a master of the universe. But I think one of the reasons why I had uh, uh, an aha moment so early was because I was keeping a journal, a trading journal. And this was just dumb luck that I, I just happened to be doing this. And I would go back to what I wrote uh, three months ago. And of course, not only did it not pan out, but the logic, and again, I'm using air quotes, was utterly absurd. And it's really hard to be delusional when you are looking at your own handwriting, Um, right? If you're not keeping yourself accountable, it's easy to keep lying to yourself, but I had the results and they weren't good. And so I said, you know, let me just keep going because I, I um, I was pretty understanding of the fact that it wasn't going to happen overnight, but I wasn't willing to give it forever. So I learned through experience. I learned what didn't work and I tried to do a million different things and then just watching people on Twitter, um, people that had an audience, it's like, wait a minute, but I, I know you're lying because you said something yesterday and not that you're changing your mind, but you're just – you're lying about a position that you put on. Like I, I'm seeing – I see you. Uh, so that was that was really a, a good opening uh, – eye-opening experience for me just to know that, you know what? People are liars. People are full of crap. I, I read Jack Bogle and how hard it is to be at the market and uh, – but nobody opens an E-Trade account and buys the Total Mark index, right? You have to try your hand at it first. And so I did try and I failed over and over and over and over again. I never took, I never made any big mistakes. I never took any big losses, but I didn't take very many big big, uh, big gains either. So I learned through experience.
0: Yeah, that's probably true for most people. Um, but it's, uh, it's awesome to hear kind of like how quickly you learn. And it's awesome to get those, I think, mistakes out of the way. I mean, one thing that I, that I thought about, I, I did read, read that chapter on Jesse Livermore and being a speculator and kind of like bucket shops back in the day. And, and I was thinking of kind of modern day day traders, right? And I used to work at Schwab. And I remember I remember being inside of Schwab on the tech side. And they had a division called Cybertrader, which was really for day traders, right? And uh, I went to see the president talk. And, you know, they threw up on the thing. It's like, hey, you know, our average user is 50 years old, brings half a million dollars to the table and loses money like the vast majority of these guys are going to lose money. I was like, okay, but, you know, Schwab's around helping people and trying to do the right thing. And I, I do believe the company's really good, but I was kind of shocked that they would, they knew that this was going to not work out for most of their customers, but they still kind of enabled it. Um, you know, but, you know, you you learned that lesson yourself. Trying to, trying to trade this. Yeah,
1: I, I don't think, I, nobody could tell you that beating the market is is a, a futile endeavor. Um, you got to figure that out for yourself. And a lot of people never figure that out. Um, and I was just fortunate enough to smell the roses at a a very young age that, um, a, uh, being a successful investor does not require beating the S P 500. Nobody, uh, at their, at their, uh, you know, late stages of life wishes they had earned more alpha. Um, and, uh, so, so that's where I am and I'm very fortunate that I came to that place.
0: Yep. Actually, I, I, I'm going to wheel out one quote from your book. Bernard Baruch you know, talked about how hard it is to beat the market, he said, if you're ready to give up everything else and study the whole history and background of the market, and all principal companies whose stocks are on the board as carefully as a medical student studies anatomy, if you can do all that, and in addition, you have the cool nerves of a gambler, the sixth sense of a clairvoyant, and the courage of a lion, you have a ghost of a chance. (laughs) I love that quote. Yeah. Page 160. I
1: think, uh, yeah, just people... For whatever reason, severely, severely underestimate how ridiculously hard the market is. And I think Twitter can be sort of toxic in the sense that it gives you a distorted view of the world where you say, hey, wait a minute, there are so many idiots on my stream and I'm trading with them. And it's like, well, no, you're not. Because that idiot is trading a $3,000 account. You're really trading against uh, the citadels and, and renaissances of the world and they are taking your lunch. Every time that you go to put on a trade,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, definitely. You know, our perspective is for retail investors. General, you know, be passive. You know, I mean, it's it's so hard to to be active. Just try to efficiently capture the returns of the market. You know, in general, um, and 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 go in knowing just how risky. If you do try to be active, you know, either leave it to professionals or understand your risk. And you know, you have a high degree of high chance of losing. Losing money. Well, I think I think one of the reasons why we
1: underestimate the the difficulty of beating the market is because we don't we don't physically see our opponents. So, in other words, when you buy a a, a share of Apple, you don't see who's selling it to you. But Jason Zweig uh, had a great analogy for the way that you should think about the stock market. When you are on a beach or on top of a mountain, and you feel just how vast the universe is, and you feel so microscopic. Um, that's how you should approach the stock market. You are nothing. If you saw who you were exchanging stock certificates with, maybe you would think twice. But unfortunately, all it takes is a button, and you don't see that, uh, Hmm. the other person.
0: Yeah, right. It's easy to underestimate what's going on out there. Uh, So, you know, where did the idea from the book come from? Well, unfortunately, I wish I could take credit for it, but I told Josh
1: that I was going to write a book about the best investors and their best investments, and he said, uh-uh, write about the best investors and their worst investments. And I said, oh, of course, that is so obvious. What a great idea. And that was it. Um, it didn't take much to change my mind. I knew he was 100% right. And I, I was given really good advice, which is write a book that you would want to read. And this certainly, certainly fit the uh, uh, fit the bill for that.
0: Yeah. It You know, it's a good book. Uh, it's interesting to read. It's I think it's great because you're combining the personal stories of these people who are these world-class investors. And, you know, you share what they did well, what they contributed to the, you know, to kind of the body of knowledge around investing. But also, you know, how their own behavior and foibles uh, led them astray. And, you know, we're all, you know, subject to this. Like, you know, Jesse Livermore, you know, making and losing several fortunes. I mean, I think... He hit being worth $1.4 billion or something, you know, equivalent, you know, in in today's dollars. He,
1: He literally made $100 million shorting the market in the crash, and he gave it all back. And the irony of Jesse Livermore is that he is the single most quotable stock market traitor of all time. Every, and every time he made a mistake, these beautiful words would fly out of his mouth uh, in terms of lessons that he learned and why he wouldn't do it again and why he made a mistake. And the reality is that, um, well, he ended up taking his own life because he, he lost all of it. But the common thread through this book is that we are all human beings and nobody is able to squash their biases. And it's hard for all of us. Um, and so Jesse Livermore was just a, a really, really great example of that. And, and just being aware of your own biases doesn't doesn't do
0: anything to to combat them. It's it's not easy, right? For sure, it's uh, kind of the behavioral side is the you know the strongest thing. Like analysis and technology is getting better and better and changing very quickly. You know, and, and J- Jim obviously talked about this, but the one thing that stays consistent is you know humans and their emotional reactions. That doesn't change very quickly, and you can count on humans to kind of make the same kinds of mistakes over and over. And so, if you can figure out how to take advantage of that, you can be successful. Um, yeah, we all
1: think we all think we're
0: above average, um, and uh, just doesn't work that way, right? Um, so, you know, another uh, you opened up with Benjamin Graham, right? So, author of the Intelligent Investor and kind of the father of modern investing, and you know, talked about how he was using leverage early on, had big gains, kind of leading into the Great Depression. Tries to time the bottom gets wiped out during an 89 percent peak to trough <laughs> decline in the Dow, right? And uh, any more color on kind of what you took from from him? Yeah, so he is the father of fundamental
1: investing, of of uh, fundamental analysis and value investing. And he was positioned really well going to the crash. He had a lot of preferred stocks and and bonds, and um, I think that was 50 or more percent of his portfolio. And so he avoided the initial plunge. Um, And because stocks were so uh, attractively um, valued, he put some money to work. He was early and I think he lost 70%. He lost a big number. So the lesson there is um, value investing. uh, Everybody wants to be a value investor. And I think that intuitively it makes sense. Buy something for less than it's worth. But why do things get to the point that they're selling for less than they're worth because nobody wants them. And if nobody wants them, what makes you think that you're going to be the one to step in? Um, these things are cheap for a reason. And that was back uh, you know, when there were so few people buying and selling stock. Um, now to identify an undervalued stock, what do you know that the market doesn't? Like Seriously, ask yourself that question. And usually, always, the answer is, yeah, I just, I don't. Um, so,
0: so there are limits to value investing, obviously, and that was that was the point behind that chapter. Yeah, I, I one takeaway for me on this was, you know, it just reminds you that like these, the Great Depression, the Great Recession, they leave these generational scars um, that affect you know entire generations. So, like the Silent Generation has been, you know, pretty good with debt, saving money, very frugal. You know, they are a much better positioned for retirement uh, than the follow-on generations. You know, the Boomers are le- are less well positioned. But like the millennials coming out of the Great Recession, and you you know you're in that bucket, right? They uh, they took some lessons from the Great Recession. You you kind of came out into like a really tough job market. Maybe saw your parents struggling or whatever, and uh, that affects how you think for your life, right?
1: Well, I think that the first three years of your career affect how you view the world for the rest of time. So if I came uh, into the, my career in, in 1986, well, then I would still be picking stocks today. And if I came into my career in 1931, then I would never own a stock again. So a lot of this, I mean, obviously is out of our hands and I am a uh, mostly a buy and hold investor. Um, but do I know what the future holds? No, of course not. Do I know that I can't beat the market? Yes, I'm pretty, pretty well aware of that. But I have no control over uh, whether the Dow will be uh, seventy-five thousand in in twenty years, or whether it'll be right where we are today, I just don't know. Um, so we are, you know, it's it's an uncomfortable truth to admit, but we don't know what market returns will be in the future. It could be could be three percent a year, it could be two percent a year, it could be eight. But who nobody
0: knows. Right. Yep. Totally. So what uh, you know from your book? What was the most surprising mistake you saw? The most surprising mistake.
1: Uh. Well. I don't know if this is surprising. I'm not sure that's the right word, but I thought the Mark Twain chapter was really one of the most interesting. Um, he was, so many lessons in that one. I think the obvious one is uh, don't throw good money after bad. If you're down 20%, 30%, uh, just stop digging. At some point, you have to have an exit strategy. Um, don't get married to an investment. But another lesson is, is um, intelligence uh, is not enough and success in one field does not translate into success in the investing markets um and uh he was so deep in debt that he literally had to do a round the world stand up comedy tour to repay his debts because he just couldn't help himself he was so emotional and uh he was so bitter towards um the money that he lost and and he did something that you know revenge trading whereas you try to make it back the same way you lost it and uh so that was that was probably one of the the most fun chapters i had researching
0: hmm. that's interesting i didn't know that you learn all these things about people when you see a different side of them right you, you hear one thing about mark twain and his quotes and stuff like that in his books but you know you don't hear so I, I, yeah
1: he has he has some of the best investing quotes ever um, and I, if he were alive today, he would be the best person
0: on financial Twitter, bar none. <laughs> Maybe someone should open a fake, you know, fake Mark Twain account and just <laughs> repost this stuff. uh, okay. That's awesome. Um, all right. You know, any, anything else you want to co- cut you want to cover from your book in terms of like biggest lessons or biggest takeaways from writing it?
1: Uh, well, so this book is it is not a how not to book the goal with writing this book i just wanted people to get a sense of how freaking hard investing is whether you're trading whether you are buying and holding whatever you're doing and one person's mistake is another person's discipline um and there's many ways different ways to do this but just it's hard. It's really hard. And you're going to make mistakes. And just have a little bit of empathy for yourself. Don't put yourself in a position where you're going to make a really big mistake. Don't take too much risk, more than you're comfortable with. And just put yourself in a position to fight it another day. And when you make a mistake, take it in stride and don't become paralyzed by uh, by what might happen next.
0: Yeah. I would say for most people, don't be active traders. You know, Be passive get or get a professional who shares your approach to the market. But it it is so hard out there, not just with other smart people, but with the computers, you know, and how quickly they're trading and everything else, and the positions you're up against, you know. It's like a and
1: just <laughs> just, just one last thing if you're if you're new to investing and you want to learn about well, I'm smart. Why why can't I beat the market? I would recommend reading. Mike uh, Michael Mobison has written a lot about um, the difference between luck and skill and uh, more importantly, the standard deviation um, in in terms of the top performers has really collapsed over time. So there used to be a huge difference between the best trader and the second best trader um, and between the second best and the third best. But now, and I think he used an analogy, why haven't we seen another 400 hitter in baseball? And that's just the perfect, perfect analogy for how the stock market uh, has has evolved over time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean one last you know personal story on this. It's like you know I, I used to trade more actively when I was younger. But like you, have done some stuff. Like I've traded options, I've traded currencies, like for a small amount of money, like less than five thousand. It's bucks. fun. It's crazy. You can take a hundred to one leverage. Yeah. And I was like, oh, and then I was like, this is stupid. I actually, I think I made yeah. money. I was like, but this is still stupid. So I got out of it thankfully. But um, you know, you, 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 it's amazing what kind of leverage you can put on and what kind of risk you can take. But you know, the other day I was like, all right, Tesla. I like Tesla. I, you know, I like what they're doing. I like what they stand for. But I was like, man, this stock is highly valued right and it's it seems like a total story stock i was like you know w- maybe we should short short you know tesla or take some really out of the money put options on this thing that might be interesting right and like literally two days later you know elon's like uh you know funding secured, funding secured we're going to take this thing p- private right for 420 a share or whatever <laughs> it's like you know if, if i had done something like that i would have gotten crushed so i i don't i don't do that stuff but just well, a reminder, you well, never know last, you never know what's going to happen
1: one last point on that um money earned from luck is indistinguishable from money earned from skill, right? People do get lucky in the stock market and that's what keeps coming back for more. And I have no problem, uh, with people that trade. If you like trading stocks, if it's a passion, a hobby of yours, fine, then do it, but be responsible. Um, you know, scratch that itch if it's there, but don't do it with the bulk of your money. Do it with say 5% of your portfolio. Um, and it will probably, if nothing else, it will probably serve as a reminder of why you're not doing it with the other 95% of your money.
0: Yep. Totally. All right, well, look, appreciate you covering the book. I wanted to move on a little bit and talk about, I mean, uh, about kind of the market and kind of financial services trends, just since we got you and you're in New York and you see this closer than we do, but I I know you probably don't make predictions, but any color commentary on kind of where we are with the yield curve and potential recessions or trade wars, anything like that? I don't know if you kind of prognosticate on that stuff at all, but...
1: Oh, I certainly do not prognosticate. I think that... um, I mean, I guess I have opinions, but I don't really believe them. You know what I mean? Like, I don't act on them. I think that uh, nobody would say that the stock market is cheap. Nobody would say that we're in the early innings. What I would suggest is a rational way to approach the market is to expect and prepare for lower returns and more volatility and a, a harder path forward. And if that doesn't pan out and we uh, continue to see you know double-digit returns, well, fantastic. Of course, we're not going to. Um and so I'm I'm, you know, loosely expecting uh, mid single digits. And you know, if we if we exceed those expectations, fantastic. But it's funny because people make the point that um, you know, we're in the 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 eleventh inning and it's only going to get harder. And uh, therefore, you should maybe make some more adjustments. But. The market is much more forgiving in a bull market. Like You can underperform in a bull market and still do fine um, because the margin for error is much wider. But if we're going to earn only 2% returns and you think that you're going to be able to jump in and out and and be uh, tactical and opportune, uh, come on, nobody can see the future. You're not that smart Um, and just just have a little dose of humility. But no, as far as the yield curve goes, I don't know what it's signaling. I don't know what inning we're in. I don't know what the future holds, um, but I would expect lower returns going forward. Certainly.
0: Yeah. Well, it's great. I mean, I think that that's what a lot of people are expecting. So we'll see. We'll see how it evolves. But it's good to have people set expectations kind of appropriately, and I think counsel people to think about like, hey, what are you going to do if it does this or does that? How are you going to react? Like, do you have those conversations yeah, you with know, your clients? Like, you know.
1: Well, I don't personally, but our advisors do all the time. You know, it's you know what is directly in our control. How much we save. Um, and, and for people that are fortunate enough to, to earn enough money to to save, they'll do it. Contribute to your 401k. Get the employer match. That's, f- you know, that's free money. Um, and, and even if even if we have, you know, 2 3% returns going forward, um, well, at least you're saving money. It's money that you are saving for your future that you would otherwise be spending. So I don't see what the alternative is. If you're super bearish, well, then then fine. Then, uh, you know, hoard gold and what do you want me to tell you about Right, right. Totally.
0: Yeah, no, I think you have to have the attitude of like, Save money, invest, kind of stick with it, and, you know, be prepared for uh, some volatility and lower returns. And, you know, that's that's kind of the best practice. I mean, like I think from our perspective, you know, we we want to look at kind of what does the evidence show, right? What does history show and just, you know, behave accordingly, right? And take all the emotion out of it. And I think that's, you know, you can only do, you can only behave, you know, as optimally as, you know, as as you can. And that's it. Like you can't, there's no like magic silver bullet here?
1: Well, history shows a few things. History shows that nobody knows what the future holds. History shows that every time is different. And history shows that the more you pay for something, the less you should expect to get, right? Um, Valuations do matter in the long run. But in 2013, uh, when we finally got above the 07 highs, the CAPE ratio was at Uh, whatever it was, 25 was certainly not cheap. Um, We're up up almost 100% since then. So all of the valuation arguments made a lot of sense back then. They still make sense today. I'm not saying valuations don't matter. I'm just saying to the point that I wrote about Ben Graham, there are limits to valuations and things change and um, just be humble. You just don't know. And I think that uh, valuations are not a timing tool. They're an expectations tool in my opinion. Um, so higher valuations, lower your expected returns.
0: Got it. You know, one of the things that, um, I saw at your EBI conference was, uh, the, I think it was the head, the chief economist for Vanguard got on and, and he had this, um, statement that like, I think one of the biggest trends facing the global, the big, he thought the biggest trend and risk facing the global economy is job automation. And like they had some forecast that 50% of us jobs may be automated away in eight years, 77% of Chinese jobs. Do you look at things like that and say, okay, how is this going to affect what we're doing?
1: Uh, no. Um, but I think that that is a legitimate concern and I think it's playing out today. And I wrote a piece called the scapegoat yesterday where I looked at, um, income inequality and, and, uh, all of the ills plaguing our society. Um, I believe stem from that and I think that we will continue to see uh, a division between um, you know the left and the right with unfortunately politicians going further out on the tribal spectrum. And that is something that really, really concerns me because pensions are underfunded, people are living longer, bankruptcies are up. It is really, really hard out there economically for the average American. and uh, and I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is. Um, I, I wrote that blaming buybacks are, are probably the wrong the, the wrong boogeyman. But there are there are problems. Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett have as much money as the bottom fifty percent of the country, and uh, and that's an issue. That's a really big issue. And I don't know at what point the the many start you know come for the few and storm the castle. And I don't you know want to be hysterical and say there's to be pitchforks in the street. But yeah, that that concerns me big time.
0: Yeah. I totally agree with you. I mean, that's some of the stuff that we look at with us, too, with longevity, healthcare. you know, some of these big trends that are happening, and, and definitely wealth inequality is huge. You know, there's there's historical context for this, too. I mean, I don't know if anyone's done this, but if you get to a certain level of inequality, like I think during the French Revolution, there was a certain level of inequality that got hit, and then, boom, you know, people revolted right. and were like, screw this, or China, you know, the Communist Revolution. I mean, actually, that affected my family. So we, my family in China, on my, on my dad's side, you know, they were wealthier. Uh, the communists came tossed, everyone fled to Taiwan, you know, lost everything. Right. And then the, you know, for a few generations, it's been like, you know, it was, uh, t- you know, they had the cultural revolution and, you know, just putting all the educated people into work and, uh, you know, out in farms was crazy and, uh, you know, yes. held the country back for, you know, decades. <laughs> and now they're obviously so storming back, but it's happened.
1: Tara yeah. Siegel, Tara Siegel Bernard wrote that bankruptcies in people 65 and older has tripled since 1991. Um, and, uh, pension benefits are getting cut. So what happens when to people who spent their entire life doing what they were told, um, preparing for this day can no longer make ends meet because they, uh, they got screwed. Um, so I don't know, like, what is the answer? And and the reason, so, so I, I wrote that change is, is a constant in capitalism and and it's a dynamic system and that's why it works. Um, but the difference between today and say 50 years ago or a hundred years ago is that, people are living to 90 to 100 and how would do they pay the bill i just i don't know what the answer is it's very very scary
0: yeah no i've been looking at this pension issue myself and yeah it's it's tough i mean you you have all of these underfunded pensions especially in the public and municipal sector that are bankrupting uh towns so uh, you know, Vallejo around the corner where I live and with and the Richmond, you know, they're basically going to declare bankruptcy because they cannot afford to make the promised pension obligations. But, um, you know, it, it'll be somewhere in the middle, right? So the obligations, you know, you'd have to crank up taxes to be like so high that it's unsustainable for people and people would leave. Um, so it'll be somewhere in the middle where probably promises, you know, promised payments will have to come down or get delayed a little bit. Right. Um, and taxes uh, will have to go up. But, yeah, and 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 people will have to work longer. I mean, I think fundamentally, yep. and that's something we talk a lot about, it's like, uh, you know, you, you need to be really thoughtful about things like Social Security and pensions. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who was asking us about his situation. He, you know, he's a doctor, uh, you know, and, you know, he's a pro. He's out he's in his 60s, his wife is over a decade younger, and he was going to claim Social Security in his mid-60s, and we were like, you know, you really should think about claiming Social Security at seventy, uh, because really it's not your income. You don't really need the income in your mid sixties, but when when you're ninety and pass away, and your wife is in her seventies, she's going to get your full payment, and it's going to be eight percent. You know, it's going to be thirty percent bigger because you delayed it a few years, and or plus inflation adjusted. It's just a huge thing, but people don't think about it that much. But you know what? In twenty five years, it's going to be game changing. So
1: yeah. So this so I so I think that there will be a continued divide between the left and the right between old people and young people um so I don't know how we get through sort of the the boomer generation and and I guess the, the generation before that but I'm actually pretty bullish on millennials long term I think that like I think that we will be okay even though th- even though things are tough right now for 30 year olds I think that it won't be that way forever
0: well the hope is productivity goes up right we we continue to do better making more stuff with with less resources and um it lifts I mean th- you know on the good side, global poverty is down significantly. So worldwide, everyone's doing better. It's just inside the U.S., this inequality is getting stretched in a huge way that I think even some of the wealthy people, I mean, I know Bill Gates and Buffett, they're like, you know, I don't need X billion, ten, you know, tens of billions. I don't need this. You know, I'm actually trying to put this bunny back to work, fixing malaria or whatever, you know, the different causes they have. So, you know, some other people want to keep it all, but it doesn't help our society to, uh, have created an oligarchy where there's a few people that get born into a tons of wealth and they keep it for generations And they use it to influence the politics that that is not how this country got created and it's not going to help us longer term It's a short-term strategy. I mean it might help you for 10 years But like when you think about your family 30 years in the future, you might you may be really messing things up So
1: yeah, so I well, people I was talking to colleagues the other day and they said well uh, Things are so much better than they used to be and it's true um, absolute poverty is at a record low, but relative poverty is exploding. And we don't compare ourselves to our ancestors. We compare ourselves to our neighbors. And that's why, um, you know, uh, lower income people that can afford a smartphone, uh, that doesn't mean that life is hunky dory for them. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a challenge. I mean, hopefully we, uh, <clears throat> we navigate through it. I mean, there are definitely, uh, there's definitely volatility in our society right now that's uh, it's a little scary I do know that you guys yeah. I, I see obviously you guys have a uh, uh, political or at least certain people have political bias you know uh, on the more probably liberal side in your organization and does that affect mm-hmm. uh, your mm-hmm. like customer base at all or question uh, gosh- yes it does yes hundred percent
1: hundred percent our your clients tend to look like you um, certainly politically um, socioeconomically for sure uh, I I, I do I, I stay pretty far away from that. I think Josh and Barry do enough of that. So I would say it's certainly alienated one side. Um, and I think that, you know, it's too, it's too late to sort of, to, to sort of peel it back. It is what it is at this
0: point. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, it's, it's fair to like, you know, speak your mind and take your positions and, you know, that's part of the dialogue. If people can keep it, if you can have respectful dialogue, that's good. I think that's one thing that's unfortunately seeming to be lost in this country where it's like, Hey, I can disagree. I can, you know, disagree with you, but still have respect for you as a person and and have an intelligent dialogue about it. That's something that is uh, core to kind of moving things forward. Yeah. It's easier said than done. Yeah. We, we don't want to lose it. Well, I think one thing that happens is just, uh, you know, things like Twitter and, you know, just the digital environment, it does just like trading, you can have your position, you can say whatever you want. You can say inflammatory things and you don't see the other side of it and you don't personalize it. And so you're like, Oh, I'm right. Everyone else is a jerk and you Mm -hmm. can be really inflammatory. But, you know, you travel this country as, you know, J.D. Roth is a a, a blogger I follow. He writes Get Rich Slowly and he's like, you know, I took this 15 month road trip and I and I and, and I've also been, you know, he travels. He drives around the country. He's like when I drive around the country and I sit with people, you know what? We're all the same. We, yeah. you know, we want the same things, right? We want to take care of our families. We want to have enough, you know, income. We want to enjoy our lives. We want to help other people. People, people want to help every, each other. It's not like different parts of the country don't want to help other people, you know? And so it, it we're not that different, but, you know, you watch some of the news stuff and, you know, I mean, you know, it's like CNN presents it one way. Fox presents it in another way. And, you know, you can see the bias. in I mean, I've you know, listen, I don't believe there's, I, I, I have a strong supporter of the media. But it's pretty interesting to, you know, see that there is this division that doesn't actually, I don't think, need to be there if people were actually more present with each other.
1: Well, I think, yes, I think that if people sat down with one another, it would go much better. I think that digital, the digital world is a a dangerous place because um, when you're not face to face with somebody, you'll say whatever, whatever you want that you would ordinarily never say to their face. And from the media's point of view. Um, they're giving people what they want and people want to be riled up and that's what the advertisers, advertisers are paying for and I hate to be so cynical, but that's, but that's what it is and, and it's not, it's not going to go the other direction. It's probably only going to get worse from here. So
0: yeah, I'll have to post up, I saw this, uh, Heineken did this funny advertisement thing where they basically said, okay, we're going to pick two people that are completely opposite and hate, would normally hate each other's guts and, and not talk and we're going to bring them in, have them do some work Like to build something and then they're going to like, they build a bar and they're going to sit down and have a beer and then they're going to discover that they normally would not like each other. And then what they found was, look, all these people got along, you know, especially if they did something together. So anyway. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, I just want to cover a couple more things. I I thought, uh, one, one, this isn't directly related, but you know, I thought your EBI conference really, it was pretty useful. I thought the the most memorable thing was when Josh got up there and said, Hey, listen, what we're doing is we've got this boy band analogy and, uh, we're bringing the best bloggers and, um, uh, you know, key influencers together. And, and that's actually working. Um, was that like, a the strategy from the beginning or just kind of happened?
1: No, 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 definitely not. Um, I was very green when Josh hired me. I, I knew nothing. <laughs> Um, so it wasn't, we were never on the lookout for, uh, acquiring talented writers. Um, it just evolved that way. And I think that, um, we are definitely stronger together. I mean, a lot of my successes because I was riding the back of, of Josh and Barry. And of course, you know, I built my own audience and stuff, but they, they gave me, you know, they, they certainly gave me a boost. Um, I would not be where I, where I am today without them. Uh, but it no, it was not the vision. it just it worked out really well. And I think one of the things that we figured out was um, leveraging our voice
0: makes our advisors' jobs a lot easier mm-hmm. for sure. Um, another thing that was memorable, which I thought was was kind of crazy was I saw, you know, Ken Fisher got up there and he was talking about his <laughs> business, you know, he, he's built this hundred billion dollar. You know, wealth management business, which generates probably a billion, a billion dollars in fees. Um, so one thing is, one I thought I would not like this guy, but he was actually pretty likable. He's actually doing some good stuff too. He, um, like, he went to Humboldt. He's got this Fisher Lab there. They're trying to save the redwoods. I'm, I'm, we live in Northern California, so I, I, I totally appreciate that. Um, he also, I think, did some interesting stuff around running his business efficiently. Um, but uh, the fact that he sees his business as unsuccessful, that like. When you look at the total universe of wealth and how much is is advised and how much they advise, which is like a tenth of a percent. And he's like, we're totally failing, even though he's the biggest probably wealth, independent wealth group out there. Yeah,
1: that was that was an interesting take. I, I, I uh, All right. <laughs> seemed um, like a little yeah. bit of false modesty, like uh, we're failing. We only have a hundred billion dollars. And I get the point that he's making in terms of nobody's market share, which is interesting. But I don't know. That sort of is weird.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I, he, you know, I don't love everything. They do for sure. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to pump him up either. Cause I think you know, we're, what we're doing is uh, somewhat competitive with him. But, um, yeah, it was just interesting to hear him. I mean, it, and then he, he made this ridiculous, uh, Christmas tree joke, which I was like, wow, oh my God.
1: <laughs> that was ridiculous. <laughs> was that, did that well, he was, he was entertaining. Like that guy, I would, I would, he could have spoke all day and I would have, I would have watched.
0: Yeah. It was not what I expected. Like I would not, not, you know. Uh, I would not expect, like, Chuck Schwab to get up there and, uh, to t- you know, to kind of give the take that he took. So, yeah, obviously, it's <laughs> completely independent. He's like, I can do whatever I want here. Um, yeah. So, that was kind of interesting. Um, all right. Well, look, I think, you know, we've covered a lot of stuff here. You know, I appreciate you kind of talking about your book and, and kind of your views on things. Um, anything else you you want to touch on when we're, you know, on this? on this? No, I uh, I appreciate uh, you having me on. This is a fun conversation yeah no it's great to get your take you know and appreciate the kind of new york perspective and kind of hearing your story and um you know where you're going and what you're doing and you know i'm looking forward to kind of continue to watch what, what you're up to and uh and I'll, I'll i will finish the book and i'll give it to my uh i was actually gonna give it to my 17 year old and say hey listen give me a give me a book report but he was too sick last night <laughs> so uh-huh. all right awesome anything else i No, not we're good okay so look i'll just wrap it up real quick and then we'll close it up so um, all right. So thanks, Michael, for being on our show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dotto Robeson, for being our sound engineer. Anyone listening, thanks for listening. Hopefully you found this useful. Uh, just a couple of quick comments. You can, we actually have a Facebook group that if you want to find us, look for us uh, you know, at New Retirement on Facebook. Also, you know, at New Retirement on Twitter. And, you know, uh, I heard this on Masters of Scale, but, which uh, I'm going to ask for. If you like this podcast, feel free to write a review. We're starting to get some reviews on iTunes. And I saw we were starting to get ranked. So I'd love to kind of push this up. And uh, that's about it. So thanks, everyone. Appreciate your time.